Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one, and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow The One Recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine yourself in the most generic grocery store in the world. Look around you in the produce section. What do you see? Some vegetables, broccoli, corn, carrots, tomatoes, fruit, apples and oranges, a bushel of potatoes, herbs like basil and cilantro, and bags of bread and rice. I was born and raised in the dry climate of Los Angeles, California, and now I'm living in Taiwan, a lush and wet subtropical island on the edge of the Pacific Ocean. And believe it or not, multinational grocery store chains are more or less the same here as well. Global supply chains have made our diets homogenous, and the average consumer is oblivious to the amount of energy and manpower it takes to produce our food. But what if we only ate things based on our climate? And what if our grocery stores were only stocked with plants that grow really well in our area? I'm Clarissa Way, and you're listening to Climate Cuisine, a podcast that explores how sustainable ingredients are grown and prepared in similar climate zones around the world. Now, in the hands of different cultures, one ingredient can take on so many wondrous forms. And as the world faces dramatic upward shifts on our base temperature, climate-centric discussions on crops will become increasingly important to the resiliency of our food systems. This podcast is divided up into three seasons, hot, warm, and cold. And in this first season, we're coming in hot. Each episode will revolve around one ingredient and how cultures around the world grow and cook that ingredient, and hopefully provide you with some inspiration in your kitchen back at home. Season one takes place in the hot zones around the world, mostly in the tropics and subtropics, with one episode centered around the desert. And today is all about cassava, also known as tapioca. It's used to make everything from bread to pudding and even bubble tea. It's a crop that thrives in really hot and wet climates. And as the world gets increasingly hot, people are referring to it as a survivor crop. But first, to help me articulate this concept of eating in accordance to one's climate, I have my friend Tammy Turner over today for some tea. She's a permaculture teacher here in Taiwan where we both live. And her job is to literally help people build sustainable food systems based on what's around them. Traditional cultures, for example, and one of the reasons they could have sustainable food systems were because they had more long-term relationships with the land that they were on. And they knew what they needed to do in order to ensure that would continue to be. And that's something right now that we've lost. So there's something that through just the choice of a single food ingredient, it's very obvious that we can have such a huge impact. If we know where our food came from and how it came to us and how it was grown, you would 
feel at least by choosing one thing or over another that the possibility of sustainability would be there. Exactly. <laughs> it all depends on the context in which these things are grown. Yeah, so it's good to, to know uh, where things come from and uh, understand even food as a part of uh, natural ecology. Like mm. it's our food, but it's part of natural ecology systems too. Now, to figure out one's natural ecology, the first step is to pay attention to where you are in the world. Today, we're starting off in Taiwan, where I'm based. Located at the western edge of the Pacific Ocean, under Japan and next to China, Taiwan is mostly a subtropical island with long and steamy summers and mild winters. The bottom half of the island is fully tropical, where there are only two seasons, wet or dry. Other places in the world that share a similar climate include Florida, Hawaii, Belize, and Senegal. For the average listener out there, this all might sound really exotic and far away. But it may actually be more relevant than you think. As the climate around the world begins to shift due to global warming, tropical zones around the world are actually expanding at a rate of 30 miles per decade. In Los Angeles, where I grew up, fruits like bananas can now be grown with varying degrees of success, provided that they get enough water, of course. And from a gardening point of view, it's actually a bit exciting. The great thing about the subtropics is that you can plant things all year round. Vegetables that typically thrive in temperate climates, like potatoes, carrots, and cabbages, are just grown in the winter instead. So we get the best of both worlds. While having a climate where things are green all year round means an ample supply of food, there are downsides to it. For one, tropical places are more sensitive to intensive agriculture. With tropical, you have sudden rains, really hot, hot temperatures. If you t totally open up the environment, you're, bit by bit you're actually going towards desertification as you lose the vegetation that can actually hold on to the moisture. Right, that's why the Amazon, like if they deforest all of that, it will just immediately become a desert compared to other places, but right? Southern Taiwan is actually becoming a desert because of, wow. of farming methods. Because since the early migrations from China, which a lot of people that came from China were bringing, a lot of them were bringing more temperate farming mm. right, methods. So when that started, the first thing, and colonialists as well, the first thing I see when you have a jungle is how to clear it mm. so that you can plant the things that you're used to eating. In short, you can't be bringing a temperate mindset into a tropical country. You know, temperate farming can be sustainable because they have winter. Right. And everything dies back and right. things rest and then the cycle kind of reinvigorates and then regenerates. But you don't have that with the extreme temperatures, the extreme water. You know, everything breaks down really, really fast and it can be really depleted very, yeah. very quickly. And so what should we be eating in the tropics? Tropical plants, of course. It sounds like common sense, but here's why. Over the generations, tropical plants have adapted to extreme heat and can withstand a lot of rains and flooding. Many of them are also perennials, which means they can grow all year round and that they have a lifespan of more than two years. This longer lifespan reduces the need for constantly disturbing the soil and tilling the land. And cassava is just one of these plants. So let's describe the plant. Imagine a very long sweet potato and they have these conical fans that stem out into the soil. And they have these long stems that are edible as well. 
but you basically have to boil everything for a very, very long time. Now, even if you've never heard of cassava before, chances are you've eaten it in some shape or form. When it's dried and ground into a powder, it's known as tapioca, which is used to make puddings and the pearls in Taiwanese bubble tea. It's also now a huge ingredient in gluten-free bread. But native to South America and spread across the world by Portuguese traders in the 16th century, it is actually known worldwide as a crop of self-sufficiency because of how easy it is to grow. Okay, yeah, you just stick it in the ground and wow. it starts growing. That's what actually a lot of tropical plants are like that. It's kind of an interesting thing. They're kind mm -hmm. of a green woody uh, thing so that when you chop it off and throw it on the ground, it grows again. For example, if you cut off the stem of the cassava or peel off any of its leaves, it won't really harm it. The plant will just continue to grow. And because of that, it's a great post-disaster food that's full of starch. And the tubers are quite big, right? Very big. Like, you know, um, they can be anywhere from, you know, say, uh, I, I mix up my, my metrics here, but anywhere from a half a meter or less to, to a full meter, actually. Wow. I, have, I have seen that that long. It's in terms of like, if you have a disaster, it's a great disaster, post-disaster food source. In the old days of Taiwan, people would boil the roots of the cassava and serve it in a sugar syrup. It was known as something that dispels heat and keeps the body cool. Farmers also used to mix cassava starch with water to form these chewy, transparent balls that they would bunch on to help them cool down in the hot summers. Eventually, people began rolling that starch with a bit of sugar and some sweet potato starch to form what we now know as boba, the tapioca pearls and bubble tea. To learn about how cassava is used in other parts of the world, I spoke to Andrea Castillo, a Brazilian-American journalist based in Brooklyn. Andrea wrote an article on cassava bread in Belize for Whetstone magazine, and I wanted to ask her more about how her culture uses the root. So I was staying with some family down there that, like, they're retired. They told me that there's a woman, a local woman named Miss Naomi, that makes cassava bread from scratch every Saturday to sell. And she's the only one in um, this particular village to do that. Well, town, Dangriga is the name of the town in the south of Belize. Because right now there is a factory that makes um, cassava bread. Sabal is the name. And, and they're, you know, they have way more like machines. It's still not like super industrial, but they have a whole system going on and they're the ones that make basically for the entire country and sell throughout. So we went to her house and she kind of like gave us the whole rundown. So right out front, she has trees. She has cassava trees. So she was just showing me like how you can tell that it's cassava just by like the certain leaves. There's like a little red vein in them and the certain shape of them. And She's like, yeah, you know, it's like the tuber from this tree that we eat. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And the thing I thought that was interesting is that with cassava, it can be toxic. I think it's cyanide. It's cyanide that's in it, which, <laughs> which I was like, wow, this is crazy. So she's like, yeah, you know, grate it, put it in water, like let it sit overnight. So all of that, like the cyanide kind of like drains out. And basically what the first step for this cassava bread, it's more of 
I would say it's more of a cracker. It's not a leavened bread. It's not made with any yeast or anything. So the process in which it's made, it's like drying it out to make a flour first. And then once that's done, the flour is spread onto like a hot komal, which you call it. It's like kind of like on top of a fire hearth, like the metal like that's on top. You spread it and kind of just fan it to make it like cook and it melts together because of the starch that's in it. In one of our cookbooks that we have at home, like a Belizean cookbook, there's an intro on cassava and it says that it's been harvested for 4,000 years and it's indigenous to the tropical region of the Americas. So Central America, South America, the Caribbean, and it went to Africa and then to Asia. So that's how we have that connection. When I was younger, and I mean, we didn't make it here in Brooklyn, but certain stores that would sell more like Latin American uh, foods, we'd be able to buy it from there. And those were generally made in the Dominican Republic. We'd warm it up and have it like with butter or maybe have like refried beans on the side. Or if you like want something sweeter, you would have it with like a guava jelly or something like that. But it's generally on the side. But what does it taste like? Is it hard? Is it chewy? So it, it's it's hard. It's It's more of like a cracker consistency. And because of just the way like it's cooked, it has like a slightly like gritty texture to it and they make the flour out of it it can be used for like many different like baked goods and especially if people you know do have gluten intolerances there's no gluten so that's another um use of it it also it's a huge source of protein as well which i thought was crazy but i'm like well that makes sense it's like it's like really fulfilling in that way so it would be boiled, right, cut up, and served with a sauce that would be like onion sautéed in coconut oil, and a sauce would be made with a tomato sauce. So you like mix that all together, and you would serve it on top, and that would be your side for like any other protein, like a fish, chicken, beef, pork, and that would kind of be used in place of a rice because we, we eat rice with everything we love rice that that's that's our other common thread it's rice <laughs> hey listeners i want to tell you about another whetstone radio collective podcast airing next week called bad table manners Bad Table Manners is expertly hosted by anthropologist Mayor Varma, who explores how the dynamics of caste and social structures influence food in India. Mayor deconstructs the monolithic notions of South Asian or Indian food by diving into micro-contexts of colonialism, restaurants, gender, labor, and the wellness industry. I'm particularly looking forward to her conversations about the fetishization of mangoes in South Asia. Be sure to listen to Bad Table Manners airing Wednesday, December 15th. As cassava traveled across the world, it got spun into new dishes. While Asia uses it in desserts and to add texture to a dish, 
In Africa, it evolved to become one of the biggest food sources of the continent. I called it Pierre Time, a Senegal-raised New York City-based chef known for bringing West African cuisine to the States. Cassava is a regular ingredient in his kitchen, and he gave me some interesting examples on how West African cuisine uses cassava. Could you tell me a little bit about your relationship with cassava and how you've been using it over the years? I'm from Senegal, so obviously in West Africa, cassava is a big thing. We actually think it's our potato. It's not even originally from there, but it's so difficult to explain that to people. But at some point, we didn't have cassava. It's in so much of West African cuisine from Senegal, Ghana, Nigeria, and throughout all the way to Central Africa. And we have so many different ways of applying it. As a chef, my inspiration comes from West Africa. So I really use cassava in all different forms, either from fufu, which is when you cook cassava in water and then you pound it with like a modern pestle. Traditionally, you pound it until it becomes uniform, shaped, almost elastic. And that's the starch we want to eat. Many of our sauces and stews, we eat with our hands. Fufu is a thing we eat with our hands. You dip the cassava into the sauce and inside the stew or okra, and it's a great way to have it. Cassava was introduced to the African continent from Brazil in the 16th century via Portuguese traders and quickly became a staple within the culture. In Senegal, you usually use cassava just as a vegetable on the side for our national dish, jebujan. We often see cassava with other root vegetables, cassava, carrots, sweet potatoes, and it comes in this dish that we call jebujan. And this has rice cooked in a broth and fish cooked in the same broth. And that broth also has cassava cooking in it as well. In Côte d'Ivoire, we, and we serve that dish at my restaurant, there's a fermented cassava couscous called acheke. Wow, is that the leaves or the tuber? The tuber itself is fermented. Since nothing is wasted in our cuisine, we also use the cassava leaves. They are another way of enjoying cassava. There's a dish we actually serve at Teranga, my restaurant. It's called Sosfei, and it's a traditional dish that means leafy sauce. Sometimes it's served with smoked fish or meat, and sometimes it's served with more starch over rice. The interesting thing about the acheke couscous is that it has a slightly, slightly acidity, slight acidity that comes from fermentation, and it's usually served with grilled fish or grilled chicken with a rustic-like sauce like raw onions, raw tomatoes, raw chilies, lime juice, raw peppers, all chopped up and mixed together. Wow, what's the texture of the couscous? Because cassava is pretty sticky, right? It has a couscous-like texture. It becomes separated and fluffy. The thing is, cassava during the fermentation process was soaked in water for a while. And then for a couple of days, it gets fermented. And then you squeeze it, you squeeze out the water usually with, you know, a towel. And then you dry it, and then it becomes like a flower. So you have to turn it into couscous by adding some water. So it becomes a couscous. And it's uh, granulated, then you dry it again. And then you eat it uh, by adding some hot water in it. Then it becomes a couscous, like, cook like couscous. 
And part of your mission as a chef, I've been reading a lot about you, is decolonizing food and really showing what people would authentic, I don't like that word, but like what cuisine in Senegal is like in New York. What does it mean um, for you to, you know, decolonize your cuisine in New York or like bring people the flavors of Senegal? It's like how I approached the cassava question just now by transcending the borders of beyond Senegal, going beyond Senegal, because those borders, the colonizers decided to divide between, you know, the French, the German, the English, Portuguese, and each of them had a section of Africa to exploit. And then those countries with their section segmented it in Senegal, became Senegal and, and Gambia, a tiny country with the same culture and same language as Senegal, um, became Gambia. It's like a different country, an English-speaking country within a French-speaking country. You know, it's just crazy. So I decolonized my cuisine. I, uh, first first of all, ignore these borders and embrace the way it's being prepared in Nigeria or other places in the region. Because food transcends borders and food is a powerful weapon to decolonize a culture, to bring back authenticity with us. So I like to, that aspect of it. Being a chef, we are opinion makers. People trust us when it comes to food. We can really help shift some people's approach to the way they eat. The food system that we inherited from a colonial system is a food system that's not sustainable. And that's the same food system that imposed upon us the monoculture, you know, then, and the specific limited amount of crops that we all eat on a global diet. We all eat rice, corn, maize, and wheat because the system has imposed it upon us because they only care about their bottom line and they disregard the seasons and they just put chemicals in the soil just to produce more more of their products. In traditional farming systems, cassava would be grown along plants in the legume family, like peanuts or beans. These are nitrogen fixers, which means they take nitrogen out of the air and fix it into the soil, which really helps considering that cassava is a heavy feeder crop. But plant cassava in a monoculture system and too much of that can actually be a bad thing. Giant monoculture of cassava farms has led to an exponential growth of plant viruses. In a large industrial farm setting, cassava is actually propagated by stems, which means they basically become clones of each other. The lack of genetic diversity means a vulnerability against new diseases. The cassava mosaic virus is now a serious problem. Endemic to Africa, it can destroy entire crops. Does it deplete the soil? Like if you do too much of it, if it's... If, well, if you were doing it as a monocrop, yeah, just like anything over time, it would. It, the biggest thing is it's your, if you were really growing it to only get that, then you would have to, to dig it really, really fine. You would have to disturb very deeply the soil. I see. And so you usually don't have to. You just do it once in a while and you can rotate the different plants. And then the root will just get bigger and bigger. So in a... A small system, it works really well, but if you monoculture this... Just like anything. anything, Yeah, 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 pretty much anything monocultured. There's a few exceptions. There's some things that are kind of monoculture all by their natural selves, like bamboo. Yeah. In Africa, they're promoting these giant farms of it because you can sell so much and it's a cash crop. Yeah, but just like anything, you get too much of anything, you're going to have boom and bust, you know? Exactly. So I talked to an agronomist once, and I was like, that's 
It's actually a formula for farmer disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, because the economics of that, it's called you know, supply and demand. You get a lot of supply, just like any of the, the price is going to drop out. Having enough sustainable supply is different than this boom and bust. Yeah. Right. So that's another problem with monocultures and, you know, kind of getting to economic scale and things like that. It doesn't serve the farmers. Right. At all. Right. right. Except very, very short term. Right. Maybe a year or two, they're on top and they're cool. And because they got at the beginning of the wave, they may really, you know, cashed in and stuff. Right. And then at a certain time, I, they'll keep trying to do it and it won't work. Of course, this mentality of shifting away from monoculture applies to our diets as well. As the world faces upwards shift in temperature, what we eat should be changing along with it. And instead of reinventing the wheel, sometimes all we need to do is look at what is around us and what generations before us have been eating. And then my last question is, as a chef who's been cooking the food of West Africa for such a long time, do you see a shift of people embracing these ingredients now, just in the last couple of years, where people are like, yes, I finally want to learn how to do it, whereas before people are like, what is this weird exotic ingredient? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I see a shift in, I've been doing it for a couple of decades now, and it's accelerating in a way that I've never seen before, and from places that I also didn't expect. Just yesterday, I was doing a live cooking demo with a whole group of students, actually a couple of hundred students in the Boston area. So, you know, Boston is very white. So uh, it was people who are very interested in what we are doing in African food. My company, Yolele, promotes African ingredients and African food culture. And we started distributing in 2017 in one supermarket next to my restaurant in Harlem. And today we are distributing in over 2,000 supermarkets across the United States. We added new products and all of those products are West African inspired. So the demand is growing. It's only expected to, and I'm not surprised. I always saw that trend coming. You know, more and more consumers are aware. They are looking for exotic places, interesting cuisines, new frontiers. The interest for food is growing. The media, TV, and all that have turned it into something quite attractive. And that's been the case for all the food cultures. And gradually, Africa was the last frontier. And Africa has so much to offer because it's not only a vast and diverse continent, but that many of its products are sustainable, gluten-free, and considered superfoods. It checks so many boxes, and the cuisine is quite fun and tasty. And, you know, we can argue that fire was mastered in Africa. So food was the first necessary step for cooking. So it's an ancient cuisine that's just going to keep growing. Yeah, you make such a good point. It's not just learning about this new exotic cuisine for other people. It really is embracing diverse ingredients and diverse styles of cooking, but not approaching it from like a, a hipster <laughs> academic way, just going back to the roots because cultures like yours and mine have been working with these ingredients for so many years and have really mastered the art of it. Like cassava, fermented cassava blows my mind. Um and I think that's something that someone can probably come up with in like 30 years by themselves in a lab. But you guys have been doing it for such a long time. And it probably helps with digestion and has all of these amazing health benefits too. Absolutely. Fermentation is great for, for your system. 
This is something that is known and there were so many ways of approaching it, including preserving it in a longer shelf life. So that was one many of the reasons why our grandmother, great-grandmothers, came up with these techniques of fermenting and drying, smoking, all those techniques. It's essential and, and now hipsters are taking part in it. My source of inspiration is to really look back at my heritage. It's a big well without a bottom. And it was there for my ancestors. If you keep digging, you just find inspiration. And you know it's my secret. I don't do much work. I just do some research on my tradition and then I'm like, okay, let's bring it back to New York City. Climate Cuisine is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. We'll be back next week with a show all about taro. A thank you to the Climate Cuisine team, co-producer and audio editor Kat Hung, researcher Olivia Maeda, intern Indio Clarkson, and production assistant Xin Yun. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glazier, sound engineer Matt Kotolchuk, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, and sound intern Simon Lavendar. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at whetstoneradio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com. 